Amen. Thank you. Ladies, thank you. It's lovely, lovely music. Good morning. <clears throat> they were crazy about each other when they first met. Shelley was introduced to Mark by a friend and was immediately struck with his rugged good looks and his kind smile. He was thoughtful and easy to talk to and laughed easily. She learned he liked biking and hiking, so she bought herself a good pair of sneakers and soon they were taking long walks and riding some bike trail and having long conversations. They talked about their hopes and their dreams and politics and theology. She would see him walk into the room and immediately feel light and happy. She knew after only several dates that she was in love with him. He was attentive and encouraging and made her feel like the most beautiful woman in town. And then they got married. At first things were difficult but enjoyable. They both claimed to know God and wanted to honor him in their marriage, but life brought the unplanned. Mark lost his job and they soon discovered how stressful that was on a marriage. Even after he found a new job, the finances seemed to be a never-ending source of worry. Children brought new joys, but they also brought new hardships. The deep conversations changed to the exchanging of information. Brief talks about diapers and grocery lists and finances, they talked a lot about that. They laughed about the funny things that their toddler did, but the adult witty banter had dried up. Now when he walked through the door, she just felt lonely and resentful. To her, he was becoming just another person that she had to take care of. And now he was not so attentive. In fact, he was distracted, preoccupied. He barely looked up from his phone. He had a career to chase and a fantasy team. And she had lunches to pack and clothes to fold. And while her Facebook page displayed a happily, a happy, smiling couple, she knew the feelings that were once there were gone. She knew she was no longer in love. What should a wife do when the love and the passion and the feelings toward her husband have grown cold? Maybe she realizes she never loved him in the first place. What then? What place should love have in a marriage? And if it is not there, then what? According to Google 2012, what is love was the most searched phrase. eHarmony says it is one of the most profound emotions we experience as humans. They said it's chemistry, and it's not something you can necessarily control. One blogger said that love could not be defined by words. It could only be defined by feelings. That raises some questions. Is love a feeling? Is it an emotion? Can it be defined? Can it be controlled? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 
Now, I actually have this printed out for you on, further down on your paper if you would prefer to follow along there. But in your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start at verse 14. <clears throat> verse 4 says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, we'll stop there. This morning, our subject is going to be loving our husbands. And I want to start with some definitions. Now, in the English language, we have only one word that we use to describe all the things that we have affection for. But in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, they have like six or seven different words. And so I want to go over a couple and because they are very relevant to marriage. So here we go. The first, and I have this on your paper, is the word eros. All right, eros describes an erotic love, a love that is an emotional involvement based on body chemistry. All right, now, in a lot of ways, the eHarmony folks, they were describing this one. All right, the foundation of eros is some characteristic in the other person which pleases you, and that produces feelings and emotions. Okay, so eros says, I love you because you make me happy. You make me feel good. Right now, next to eros, you can write the word egotistical. Right, egotistical, because this is a very self-centered love. All right, you can also write next to this one, not in the Bible. All right, because this word, eros, you don't ever see this love um, written about in the Bible. Okay, our next one, number, this is the second definition there, is for philos. And philos describes the love between two people who have common interests and experiences and involves feelings of warmth and affection toward each other. Now, you can write mutualistic next to this one. All right, this is that brotherly friendship love. I'm loving you because you are loving me. All right, now where eros was about my happiness, philos is about our happiness. Okay, so philos, philos is describing a fond affection, a bonding. All right, um, and you can even write the word wife next to this one because this is the one we'll be talking about for um, wives. All right, now, obviously, this word is in the Bible. However, um, when the Bible tells you to love your enemies, it's not using this word. Okay, it's using the next. And the next one is agape, and that is describing a love the agape love is the determined act of the will. It's a, a resolve, a well-being, a, a resolve for the well-being and goodwill of the object of love, no matter what emotions or feelings exist. All right, now next to agape, you can write altruistic. All right, you could also write the word divine. Because this is the unconditional, sacrificial love where you are putting the welfare of others above your own. Right now, it is always shown by what it does. And where philos was from the heart, agape is from the head. You are purposing to do it. You are choosing to do it. 
Now, I want you to think about it for a minute. Because when you were dating your husband, you were probably overflowing with eros. And yet, at your wedding ceremony, you stood before your guests. And what did you promise to do? You promised to philos and agape, your husband. Okay, now, interestingly, <clears throat> something else. The Bible never specifically commands wives to agape their husbands. You remember we've been circling the word wives when we see it because it's telling us where, what our gender-specific instructions are. Well, we are commanded to respect our husbands. We're commanded to submit to our husbands, but as far as gender-specific inst gender instructions, we are never told to agape our husbands. Now, the husbands are. The husbands, that is their gender-specific instructions, but we never see the reverse. All right, now, does that mean that we do not have to agape love our husbands? Okay, well, you know the answer to that, but come with me. We're going to see it for ourselves. Look, turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. This is a conversation between a lawyer and Jesus. Matthew 22 says this, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so this is the word the word love in these verses is the word agape. So wives, you do not have gender-specific instruction telling you to agape your husband, but you do have a verse telling you to agape your neighbor, and your husband is your closest neighbor. Okay, And so you are to agape him. You are to be, have a determined act of the will, a resolve for his well-being. And then Jesus puts this in very understandable terms. He is saying that you should be loving your husband in the same way that you love yourselves. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I am really good at that, at loving my own self. I cannot think of a single time in recent years that I have been unkind or rude or arrogant with myself. I'm very supportive I, have, um, I don't ever say anything to hurt my own feelings. I have never held a grudge against myself. When it comes to loving myself, I have mastered that. Okay? Now, here's what I, I, I don't want you to do. I don't want you to read this passage and think that Jesus is telling you that you have to first love yourself in order to be able to love others because that's not what's going on here. In fact, I would, I would recommend that you circle the word as in um, verse 39 because that is making this sentence a simile. It's making it a comparison. All right, it's not telling you that you are to love yourself. It is presuming that you already do that. Okay, now here's our next point, and it's our first point. Number one, we are to love our husbands as we love ourselves. Now, what is that going to look like in your daily life? What I, what I want to do very quickly is just let's work through that 
um, passage that's on your paper and kind of turn it into a list. And let's see how we're doing. Verse 4, for instance, says this, love is patient. Let me ask you, are you patient with your husband? According to the Bible, one of the ways that you show love to your husband is when you are patient with him. Okay? Agape is long-suffering. All right? Next, love is kind. Are you kind with your husband? Are you nice to the guy? All right, think about it. I want you to think about your tone. I want you to think about your language. When he talks to you, do you listen? Do you look at him in the eye? Those would be kind things to do. Okay, do you um, share? Do you give? Do you smile? Okay, those are kind things to do. Are you kind? All right, next it says, love does not envy or boast. Do you envy? What if your husband gets to go camping with friends for a weekend while you stay at home? Or maybe you find out his workday was him playing golf with customers all day. Or maybe he gets to go out every day and eat at a nice restaurant while you're at home eating boxed macaroni and cheese. Are you resentful? Agape does not, or, uh, sorry, are you envious? Agape does not envy. Next, it says, agape is not arrogant. Are you arrogant? Do you act like you're better than him? Do you act like your plans and your ideas are better than him or his? What's the vibe in your home? That women are superior? Agape is not arrogant. All right, next it says, love is not rude. Are you bossy? Do you talk to him like he's a child? Do you use manners? And do you use common courtesies? Please, thank you, no thank you, beg your pardon. Common courtesies, agape is not rude. Number, verse five, it says it does not insist on its own way. Do you do that? <clears throat> do you pick all the restaurants and the movies? Do you insist on doing things your way? Are you making all the decisions? Are you argumentative? Agape does not insist on its own way. Verse 5 says it is not irritable. Are you easily provoked? As a wife, are you grouchy, miserable, difficult? Or do you agape? Next it says agape is not resentful. Now some of your versions may say keeps no record of wrong. Are you keeping a record of all the dumb things they do so that you can bring it up when you need to make a point? Do you resent him? Maybe he's made some financial decisions that are affecting you. Maybe he's moved you away from your family. Maybe he doesn't discipline the children like you want to. Are you resentful? The Bible says agape is not resentful. Verse 6, it says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, agape does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in truth or integrity. Do you realize that when you are dealing with your own sin, when you're putting your sin to death and you are pursuing holiness in your own life, that actually is beneficial to your husband. 
Okay, that's agape. All right, now verse 7 says, love bears all things. All right, that means to endure. That means to put up with things. Do you bear all things or do you complain? Are you a constant whiner and a complainer? Agape bears all things. All right, verse 7 also says, love believes all things. Do you see the best in your husband? Do you give him the benefit of the doubt? Or do you just presume he's going to make a mess of things? Next, it says, love hopes all things. Do you look on the bright side of things and have a positive and hopeful outlook? Or are you critical and pessimistic? Agape hopes. All right, and then the last one is endures. Love endures. That means it perseveres. That means you get up the next morning and you do it all over again. Right? Agape, day after day after day. Now, I want you to notice something about this little list. It's something that we've talked a lot about in recent months, uh, especially when we went over the book of First Peter. Each of these things have something in common, and that is they are going to require that you lay down your life. If I am going to determine to put the welfare of my husband over my own, that means I am going to have to lay down my life. If I am going to greet him at the door with a, a kind, beneficial greeting after I've had a bad day, I'm going to have to lay down my life. If I'm not going to be resentful after he has said something unkind or hurtful, I'm going to have to lay down my life. If I'm going to bear all things or believe all things after he's made foolish business decisions, I'm going to have to lay down my life. I want you to look up at verse 1. It says this. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 1 says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but, I have, not, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a cling, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, Paul, he is explaining the distinguishing mark, the defining mark of Christianity is agape. Okay, that's the crowning jewel of Christianity, the laying down of our life for the glory of God and for the benefit of someone else. Okay, and um, that is the heart of the gospel. And if you are not displaying the agape gospel message in your lives, then Paul has something to say for you. He says, you are nothing. He's saying that as far as Christianity is concerned, you are irrelevant. Now turn with me to, to another passage. Um, turn to John 15. John 15, 12. You had this as a part of your homework. John 15, 12. This is Jesus talking. Here's what he says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Okay, here's the word agape again. And do you see how Jesus is explaining it? 
He's describing it in the same way Paul is. He's saying, laying down your lives. Laying down your lives. Jesus is the example. We follow his example. All right, now turn with me to one more. Let's turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 5. Romans 5, 5 says this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, now there's our word agape again. And now we see one of the reasons why agape is called a divine love. Because listen, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot conjure this up on your own. You certainly cannot do it by loving yourselves. All right, this is God's love, and he pours it into you by way of his Holy Spirit. And apart from the Spirit of God regenerating you and dwelling in your hearts, you cannot love anyone this way. Right? You might get a few things right here and again, but it will not be defining you. All right, and that brings us to our next point. Number two, a defining, distinguishing mark of our Christianity is our agape love. All right, now, that's the general instruction about people who are claiming the name of Jesus, how we are to be loving our neighbors and our friends. All right, let's get a little more specific. Let's talk about the gender-specific instruction that the Bible gives to wives. Now, to do that, we need to go to Titus 2. So find Titus chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 3. And I want you to watch for the word love. Titus 2 chapter 3 says this. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Okay, now when Paul wrote this, he understood some things about women. All right, he, he, at least the women that in his day that he knew of. And that was that women knew what it was like to be a dutiful, a dutiful wife. The kind of woman that puts the needs of her children and the needs of her husband above her own. He knew that women were by design servers, nurturers, and, and lovers in that regard. So interestingly, when he gives the gender-specific instruction, he does not tell us to agape. All right, he addresses something different. He uses the different term from love. He's using that second definition for love. He is using a form of phileo, and that affectionate, friendly love. And, can, and here's our next point. Number three, as wives, the gender-specific instruction is to learn phileo love for our husbands. All right, now since this kind of love involves feeling and emotion, Paul doesn't command us to do this. All right, he commands the older women to teach it, to train you in it. And now I want you to look at the definition, that second definition, because this is what the older women are to be schooling you to do. We are to be teaching you to develop a fond affection for your husbands, for you to be friends, for you to have feelings from your heart for your husband. Now that immediately tells us something. 
It tells us that your marriage can be more than you just dutifully sacrificing for him. You can learn to have a friendly, tender affection for the man that you married. Here's our next point. Number four, feelings of affection can be learned. Feelings can be learned. Now, some of you are here and you're thinking, this is not a problem. My husband and I are best friends and I already have tender feelings toward my husband. That's wonderful. But there will be others here that may be thinking, I'm just hanging on by a straw. Any tender feelings that I had for my husband are dying a slow death. Some of you may be married to very unlovable men. So it actually helps us to understand the context of this passage. Paul is writing to Titus, who is Greek, and the people, the culture in which Titus is living in is Greek. All right, and in Greek society, men married a woman so that she could produce a legal heir and raise a family. In Greek society, you did not marry for love. Your, your marriage was arranged by your father. He likely uh, arranged that to benefit himself, and your desires were not likely considered. Greek men were about 30 years old when they married, and the women were usually between the ages of 14 and 16. You were removed from your home, and taken to live with your new husband, a man you likely met for the first time on the day that you married. Your marriage was basically a legal arrangement to supply your husband with children. If the husband wanted to have fun or companionship, he got himself a mistress. The idea of a wife being close, affectionate companion to her husband was unheard of. Historically, people did not marry for love. It was not the main reason couples married. Love was not present to begin with. Now, I will say this. Thankfully, in the Bible, our Bible stories, that is not the case. We, we see love uh, in our Bible stories. But the women that Paul was addressing here, they were former pagans. Okay, and so they very likely had not married for love. And when those pagan women became Christians they very often went back home to a husband that they didn't like or necessarily enjoy. In fact, they probably went back home to a husband that had a mistress for his enjoyment and friendship. And yet notice what Paul tells them. He says, I want you to go back there and love him. I want you to go back there and learn how to have tender, loving affection for that man. Now, it may not exist right now, it may be a foreign concept to you, but I want you to learn to love. And here's the next point, and it's a Carolyn Mahaney quote. Number five, we are required to love them with nothing less than a passionate, tender, affectionate love, kind of love. When Paul addresses the wives, he does not confront their need to serve and sacrifice for their husbands. They were probably already doing that in some form. So instead, he tells them, wives, I want you to learn to be his friend. 
to love your husbands with tenderness and affection. I want you to learn to be husband-likers. One author and counselor wrote that he often asks the husbands, does your wife love you? They reply, yes, of course. But then I ask, does she like you? And the answer usually comes back, nope. Paul, in the book of Titus, is telling us wives, I want your husbands to be able to answer that differently. I want your husbands to know that you like them. And that can be learned. That brings us to our next point, number six. Cultivating feelings of affection is a process. Those feelings, they may not occur the moment you become a believer. They may not occur the moment you decide to be obedient. They may be a process. Let me share you a little story from my own life. In recent years, I have shared with my husband that had I not been a believer, I would have probably left him in my 30s. Uh, he was dumbfounded and very clueless about the whole thing. My kids didn't have any idea either. I was working very hard to be uh, a dutiful wife and agape. I was trying to produce agape in my home, but um, emotionally I was becoming very detached. I can remember uh, going to church one week and a, and a girlfriend coming up to me, she was older, and she mentioned something about taking the kids for a weekend so that I could be alone with my husband. And I can remember looking at her and thinking, why would I want to do that? Now, thankfully, thankfully, that was a short-lived season. And by the grace of God, and it's only the grace of God, I didn't do anything stupid. But it brings me to our next point. And that is number seven. In most instances, affection is learned through example and experience. Now, <clears throat> we could also say affection is relearned through example and experience because that, that was certainly in my case. <clears throat> we often learn affection by watching the example of others we admire and then doing those things for ourselves. Now, I can remember having a friend who was genuinely crazy about her husband. And um, she and her husband were best friends. They were always doing fun things together, not just as a family. We did that. But I was watching her do fun things with her husband. She was making her marriage a priority. And, and she became such an example to me and a motivator and accountability. And I began to put into practice the things that I was watching her do. And you know, those sweet affections that I knew when I first married began to return. And then I wanted to farm out my children to go away with my husband alone. Here's our next point. Number eight, in many instances, positive feelings follow actions. This is a really good rule of thumb. Generally speaking, the positive feelings come after 
the affections come after the actions, okay? Very often, not always, but the positive feelings are usually the byproducts of your actions. So you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like being kind. I don't feel like putting myself out there. Well, do you want to be obedient? Do you want to be obedient? That's the question, right? The feelings are like the caboose. I'll think of them that way. All right, now, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking a little bit about how we can become better friends with our husbands. And uh, we're short on time. We don't have a lot of time to go over this. So I'm hoping that you'll talk more about this in your small groups. But I'm going to give you a few things to get you started. Here's number nine. Number nine, remember while your husband should be your best friend, he is not your girlfriend. Okay, now I want to explain this one. Mark Gunger, he explains that nowadays when women are asked to describe their ideal man, they will rattle off all these sweet and wonderful things that they want in a man, and in the end, what they have done is described a girlfriend. And he explains that men make terrible girlfriends, okay? And, and the truth is, unless they are gay, they do not want to be your girlfriends. They want to be men. Now, he goes on to explain something I found interesting. He said that 80% of all divorces are filed by women. It's the women that are upset about marriage. Now, he goes on to say this, quote, women of the 21st century have completely unrealistic expectations when it comes to living with and dealing with men. I wonder, do you have unrealistic expectations from your husband. Now, he does have a theory, and he believes that one of the main reasons that, one of the main contributors for this is that women, they're leaving their families, they're leaving their support systems when they marry, and that new husband, they, they follow their, is this making noise for me? Okay, I'm trying to get it. I'm trying, I've been trying to do that, I'm hearing it. How about now? Can you all hear me? Sorry about that. It's been bugging me. Okay, let's try this again. Okay, he has a theory. And he believes that one of the main contributors is that women are leaving their families, they're leaving their support groups to follow the husband that they marry, and that leaves a terrible void in the wife's life. And so what does she do? She turns to the husband for all her, of her emotional needs to be met. And he's not able to do that. He was never intended to do that. All right, so he has some advice. He says, find good girlfriends who can fill the void that was once filled by their mothers and their sisters and their childhood friends. Ladies, you, um, even if your husband is your best friend, which I hope he is, you still need girlfriends. You need girlfriends. Your husband is not your girlfriend. All right, here's our next point, number 10. Husbands desire their wives to be a recreational companion. Willard Harley, he wrote a book on marriage, and he listed the various needs that men had in marriage, and this was second on his list. Men want to play and have fun with their wives. You likely did that when you were dating. He would like to continue it now that you're married. Okay, and um, you, we women, we like to sit and talk and chat. 
Men like to do things. They want to hunt. They want to fish. They want to watch a ball game, uh, various things like that. And apparently, they like doing it with their wives. Now, Shanti Feldhahn writes this. They want to do the guy things with their wife. They want her to be their playmate. And they view that as incredibly romantic. Playing with their wives make them feel close and loving and intimate. And she also said, women having fun with her husband, a woman having fun with her husband was very attractive to men. All right, now, if you have small children and you do not have a free babysitter, then um, you're going to have to get a little creative probably to make this happen. Jen Wilkins talks about this, and she says that she took up gardening with her husband because it was something that the two of them could do. They could put the kids to bed and then not have to leave the house. Now, um, this particular lesson was especially convicting to me because I have a husband that loves to play board games and cards, and I never do that with him, I ne unless there's a party. You know, I don't do it during the week. And so I told him, I'm going to change that. Now, the reason I bring it up is because um, my point here is that there are different ways that you can do things at home for free. You're just going to have to get creative and ask your husband. Ask your husband to help with that. All right, now here's the next one, number 11. Remember, men equate love with respect. We've been talking about this one all along, too. When men are asked if they would rather be respected or if they would rather be loved, they usually answer that in one or two ways. They will say either they, um, they say they want to be respected or they will ask, what's the difference? Okay? Men equate love with respect. Shawnee Feldhahn writes this. She says, if he feels disrespected, he's going to feel unloved. And what that translates to is this. If you want to love your man in the way he needs to be loved, then you need to ensure that he feels your respect most of all. Now, um, you might be thinking, well, he isn't worthy of respect. He doesn't do anything honorable. Well, apparently... The average man thinks he deserves to be respected just because he is a man. And it turns out that's actually a great reason. They want to be respected unconditionally for who they are in the same way that you and I want to be loved unconditionally for who we are. I heard a, um, a woman, she was talking about the old saying that said, um, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, she said, no, the, the truth is, the way to a man's heart is through respect. Okay, she said, we cultivate friendship and affection with our husbands by respecting them. Emerson Egerich, he wrote, he wrote this. He says, no husband feels affection toward a wife who appears to have contempt for who he is as a human being. The key to creating fond affections of love in a husband towards his wife is through showing him unconditional respect. End quote. Now, we, uh, we women, we love to hear our husbands say, I love you. Right, that's the terminology we use. That's the terminology we want to hear. <clears throat> I recently reconnected with some um, dear friends in my hometown. We used to pray together. So we decided to go.
go back to praying together via text messaging. And you know, every single message, we end every conversation by expressing how much we love each other. Do you know when I text my friends, our texts are filled with heart emojis. You know, sometimes I change the color. Sometimes I use those three in a row. Sometimes I use that little smiley face with the hearts and the eyes. Okay, I, I've discovered something. When my husband texts his men friends, he does not use heart emojis. It's just, they're just not thinking like that. We want the I love yous, men want respect. I want to, um, Emerson Egerich, he has a very interesting challenge for women. He recommends wives write your husbands what he calls respect cards. He says, according to my research, men seldom keep love cards their wives send them with all the hearts and the X's and O's, but I guarantee you, he will keep a card you send him that says, I was thinking about you the other day, that you would die for me. That is an overwhelming thought for me. Sign it, he says, with all my respect, the one who still admires you. Remember, do not sign it with all my love. He already knows that you love him. Sign it with all my respect. Your husband will keep that card forever. You will walk in on him years from now and find him rereading that card. Why? Because you said it in his way, in his mother tongue. To speak in a husband's mother tongue of respect is very powerful indeed. Feldon has some additional advice. She explains that men are not as moved by the words, I love you, as we women are. She says they would rather hear things like, I'm proud of you, or I believe in you, or I trust you, or I trust your judgment, things like that. So she was telling, she tells the story of how she was following her husband around the house, going, oh, I sure am proud of the way you just did that, or, oh, I just respect so much the way you just did that. And the husband was like, you know, okay, I, I see what you're doing here. And he was appreciative, <laughs> but that sent her looking for the daily equivalent of a man's I love you. What can we say? And she came up with this, or she discovered it was the words, thank you. She says, tell your husband, thank you. Thank him for what he is doing. Does he stop after work to bring you milk? Thank you. Does he take out the trash? Thank you. Does he bathe the children? Thank you. Does he fill your car up with gas? Thank you. Now you might be thinking, oh, for crying out loud, why do I have to thank him? He should be doing those things anyway. Well, do you know that um, men will often think, why do I have to tell her I love her all the time? She should know that. Well, we should, but we still like to hear it. So she tells us, tell your husbands thank you. They want to feel respected. They want to feel appreciated. She says to your husband, for you to say thank you for a man, this is oxygen. All right, here's our next one. Number 12. Remember, men equate love and closeness with, you know it, sex. Yeah. 
If you were here last week, you should know it. We have the full lesson on this one. <clears throat> if you weren't, I would recommend that you listen to the podcast. Um, I watched this marriage conference of a pastor online, and he was trying to explain to the women in the audience how important sex was to their husbands. And uh, he was kind of like a comedian. He was very humorous. And he made the statement that men really wouldn't bother, bother with us if it wasn't for the sex. And uh, then he went on to talk about the famous saying about the way to a man's heart is through the stomach. Only he said we were a few inches too high. He said that the way to a man's heart is by having a lot of sex with him. A man feels connected with you. He feels loved by you. He expresses his love for you in this way. You may feel very connected with him by talking and taking a stroll, and he may enjoy that, but his primary way of connecting with you will be by having sex. Last week, we said that for a man, sex was essential to his feeling of being loved and desired by you. It was emotionally essential for for him. Feldhahn writes this. She says, first, know that you are responding to a tender heart hiding behind all that testosterone. If at all possible, respond to his advances with your full emotional involvement, knowing that you are touching his heart. Men feel desired and loved by their wives when their wives want to be with them physically. One author he tells the story of a man who was having a very difficult and stressful time at work. And so his wife initiated comforting him. He was then asked how he felt about his wife initiating sex. Listen to what he said. I cannot tell you how much my wife's gesture meant to me. When she initiated having sex, it was as if she were screaming to me, I love you so much. Men equate sex with love. Now I want to leave you with a few assignments this week. I am going to recommend that you ask him what he would like to do for fun this week. Now, here's how that's going to go. You're going to ask him that, and he's going to tell you, have sex. And then you're going to say, well, of course, I meant in addition to that. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing, ask your husband how he would answer the question, does your wife like you? Let's find out. Let's find out where, where you stand on that one. And then lastly, I would encourage you to write your husband a respect card. Thank him for something he does for you, something that he means to you. And then sign it respectfully yours from the one who still admires you. All right, let's close. Father, our, our prayer is pretty simple, that you would just help us to love our husbands. We know that if we are believers, that you have put your love in us, you fill us, 
so that we can properly love them to the glory of God. I pray that you will help us to agape love them so that we can show the world what Christianity looks like and put you on display there. I pray that you will help us to be women that like our husbands and have an affection for them and help us to learn how to do that and be friends to them. And we pray that we'll do all of these things so that your name may be made known and great throughout this city. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.